It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Tuesday, December the 14th, 2021. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. It's the Guy Benson Show, and I'm Guy Benson, your host. Very happy to have you here. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'm a political editor at townhall.com. You can read my stuff at Town Hall. And I'm also host of this fine program, and we are just delighted and honored that you listen to us. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And then there's the podcast, which is free every day on demand when the show is over, including bonus Benson on the weekends. All of the information, all of the ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com. Plus, you can get the podcast info there as well. GuyBensonShow.com. Our lineup today is as follows. Douglas Holtz Aiken ran the Congressional Budget Office, the official scorekeeper on Capitol Hill. They do the math. Well, they are under attack from the White House, calling their most recent analysis fake when it comes to build back better in this multi-trillion dollar boondoggle from the Democrats, which is growing more unpopular by the day as inflation grows worse. We will get Douglas Holtz Aiken's reaction. He can sort of tell us how this all works in reality when he joins us later this hour. In our next hour, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, she'll be here. We'll talk about Ukraine. We'll talk about Capitol Hill wrangling and the Democrats' proposals. We will also ask her about the situation on the ground in her state, Tennessee, with those tornadoes doing some damage. Not as bad as we saw in Kentucky, but there are absolutely affected families and communities in the volunteer state. And we will catch up with Senator Blackburn coming up later. Also in our final hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire will be our guest. I have a lot that I want to get to with her, the latest on Omicron, more good news. I know you're not hearing it necessarily out there very much, but more good news on the Omicron variant. The data continues to be very encouraging about the lack of severity, the lack of virulence relative to previous variants, especially Delta. We'll get her medical expert opinion on that, plus what to make of some of these new Vaccine mandates for children, including kids as young as five. Is that justifiable? Is that medically necessary for the average first grader? We will pose that question to Dr. Sapphire in our final hour, an interview that you don't want to miss. Fox News alert as we begin. Statistics, 50 million known cases of COVID all time in the United States. Multiply that by three or four. That's probably closer to the real case count. The death toll here in America, people who have died with or of COVID. And we once again underscored and emphasized the difference between dying with something or dying of something. But the total number in the U.S., 797,208. The Dow at this hour down 68 points, currently trading at 35,000. 581. Well, last week, we opened one of our shows with me reading 
extensively. In fact, we followed up. We opened part of a program with it, and then we followed up the next day on it. A New York Times story talking about an increasing pattern, a new trend in education, particularly public education, government education in this country, which is more school closures for reasons either tangentially related or just unrelated to COVID. Right, we had schools closed in far too many places, massively detrimental to kids, to their mental health, to their development. You look at learning loss, you look at all kinds of emotional and physical problems, social problems. I mean, that list is now long. The data, the clarity that we have on the enormous, profoundly harmful disservice that was done to millions of kids around the country based on anti-scientific decisions to close and then keep closed schools, even when we were looking at real-time data, real-time outcomes in Europe, in the UK, in private schools around the country, in states that were open like Florida. There were still a lot of places, and generally the more democratic and the bluer you get, the more likely kids were locked out of classrooms for longer because of this unholy alliance on this issue between the Democratic Party and the government public teachers unions. And I think that we are going to be grappling with the ramifications and the consequences of that for a long time. I think we have barely scratched the surface of the harm inflicted on kids. And yet, now that schools have reopened almost everywhere at this point, belatedly, disgracefully belatedly in a lot of places, you now have teachers and teachers unions saying, oh gosh, this is so overwhelming, we're beleaguered, we're tired, we're burnt out, and so schools, and we read extensively from that, uh, the New York Times story, which interviewed parents, just shocked and angry parents in places ranging from Michigan to Nevada and all over the country, when school districts just at the drop of a hat say, we're actually going to close schools now for two or three days at a time, or every Friday for the rest of the month, or the next entire week with two days' notice. As if there hasn't been enough learning loss, as if the kids aren't already trying to catch up, locking them again out of classrooms for new reasons is absolutely outrageous and shocking, and yet it's happening. And the explanation is that these teachers, it's just really hard on them. I have no doubt that there is some burnout and fatigue and frustration and that there are challenges. Some of the challenges, by the way, caused by or certainly exacerbated by school districts and states' decisions to keep kids out of school for a year, right? There are, there are outcomes and there are consequences for policy decisions, and when you create some of those challenges yourself or make them worse than they need to be, then running away from the challenges, I think, is not acceptable. And I feel like I always have to say I have people in my family, close friends who are public school teachers. I'm a product of public schools. I got a great education. I'm not anti-teacher. I'm not anti-public school. I am pretty anti-public school union. 
what these union bosses have done, what they have wrought, and what they continue to wreak. Because it is just to me unfathomable that you have this situation cropping up the way that it is. Oh, the teachers need mental health days. Everyone needs mental health days. It's been the pandemic has been hard on everyone. A lot of people are burnt out. How do you think the guy who drives the 18 wheeler who never had a day off probably worked even more just to keep the country running in the middle of covid when there was no vaccine? How do you think he feels? Think he's a little burnt out? What about the doctors and nurses working around the clock with people dying around them every day for months on end? Are they burnt out? What about the people stocking the shelves at grocery stores who couldn't take a day off because we all have to eat? You think they're burnt out? What about when their kids can't go to school and they have to figure out how to deal with childcare or how to pay for childcare? Could that perhaps lead to some burnout and financial hardship? Yes, of course it could. And I think to pretend that it is uniquely hard on teachers who get a lot of time off, as it is, many of whom did not show up or darken the door of a classroom for more than a year, I think that is extremely tough to swallow, that story, including for many parents. Which brings us to the latest story about this phenomenon from the Washington Post. This is not just a minor thing happening one or two places, and I'm latching onto it and blowing it up because it makes for good You know, conservative talk radio where we just want to demonize teachers. That's not what this is about. It's about defending and protecting kids where adults have betrayed them over and over again throughout this pandemic and continue to do so. And it is much more widespread and growing than people want to imagine, which is why it's shown up not just in The New York Times, but also The Wall Street Journal. We've quoted local news stories. And then this from The Washington Post headline, schools add half days to beat teacher fatigue. In a school year widely described as the most grueling of the pandemic, schools have come up with at least one fix for teacher burnout, more half days. And they cite examples because this is a local story in the Post in Virginia and Maryland where they are converting full days into half days. They're quoting officials saying this is due to, quote, stress and anxiety caused by the wearing down of staff like none of us have ever seen before. One official says we want our teachers to be fresh, to be energized, to be in a better spot. So they're just giving them more time off on top of the time off that they already get, which is more than most people in the workforce. I think we'd all like to be fresh and energized and in a better spot. Here's part of the game that they're playing here. A Baltimore County parent who's testified against these decisions publicly is telling state officials that the trend in Maryland is at odds with the state's decision to require school systems to provide 180 days of in-person learning this year because half days don't affect that count, right? So half days would, my understanding is, quote unquote, count as a day of in-person instruction, even though it's half a day. And let's be honest, let's be perfectly frank here for a moment. Think about when you were in school, back when you were a kid. How did your brain compute half days? I remember, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I suspect many of you are going to nod along with this. When you had a half day of school, it was kind of like a fake day. 
like, yeah, you had to show up. You did some stuff, but your mind was already on where you're going to go for lunch when school let out because it was a different sort of day. It was not a real full day in your mind because it was a half day. You were not in the headspace of normal learning. Then, of course, you've got parents, working parents. Half days are a huge pain in the rear end for them because it throws off the whole schedule and the needs for child care and the whole plan. What we need as a society, kids, parents, everyone, what we need more than ever is normalcy, predictability after so many disruptions. And what we have now is a trend away from that. And it's no longer the virus. It's no longer COVID. It's no longer outbreaks. It's no longer phony excuses like, oh, we need to sanitize the ceiling or whatever in these schools. It's, oh, the teachers are burning out. And so they need more time off. And so, sorry, kids, you're going to have more half days, which we all know how kids react to half days. I remember. And sorry, parents, figure it out. It's a half day. You've got a full day at work, but tough luck. It's like the hits just keep on coming. And so they quote teachers unions bosses that are in this story. Of course, they're all in favor of this. Desperately needed. An important step, one of them said. Right? Not even the end game here from this teacher's boss, this union boss perspective. It's an important step toward what they need. God knows what they have planned. And I guarantee you some of them will try to get away with whatever they think they can. They've had this experiment for the last year and a half in basically throwing up two middle fingers over and over again to parents and to kids. And it seems like the lesson so far has been let's push more. So on top of the days off and the random school closures, now you've got this other addition to the repertoire. Half days to replace full days. And that's not all. When we come back, I want to tell you about other things happening in public schools. Out in California, which is like the birthplace of most of our madness in this country, they want to push equity. And so wait till you hear what they're going to get rid of in some of these school systems, just abolishing something. We'll tell you about that. Plus, Oregon, also out there on the left coast, what their equity pursuit has brought about. We will bring you those stories as soon as we come back, as we just get rolling here. Tuesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We are back talking about education. I want to remind you of a headline from the Oregonian over the summer. Governor Kate Brown, hardcore leftist out there, signed a law to allow Oregon students to graduate, meaning from high school, without proving they can write or do math. She doesn't want to talk about it. 
She signed it quietly. She wouldn't really address it, but she signed it into law. And the explanation was from these left-wing do-gooders was by eviscerating standards on reading and writing and math, they were helping with equity and helping students of color, which if you just think about it for 10 seconds, actually sounds very racist. Like, oh, well, let's help students of a certain skin color and let's help them by eliminating the standards. What, because we don't think they can meet those standards? What an insulting thing to say about anyone based on skin color. But I guess the voters out in Oregon, they'll put up with almost anything. Look at Portland. It's a solidly blue state, but not to be outdone is California. Here's this story from this week. Some of the largest school districts in California are facing criticism after announcing the elimination of D and F grades for some students. School districts in Los Angeles, Sacramento, San Diego, Oakland, among others. This is not a small thing happening one or two places. Huge major cities in California are reportedly ending the practice of giving out any grades below C for high schoolers. Students will also be given more time to complete assignments if they aren't uh, turned in on time. The ability to retake failed tests. And this is, of course, being done in the name of progress and equity. It's just unfair to give someone a D or an F if they earn a D or an F. I mean, this is the explicit dumbing down of our standards and our systems. And what I think is particularly aggrieving about this out in California, and we saw it also in New York where they were talking about eliminating standardized testing and colleges also saying, oh, we're not going to accept standardized tests anymore. When you have educators who have been AWOL for more than a year, forcing these kids into horrible situations, remote learning, all of it, failing these kids, the teachers unions, the adults making these decisions. And then the kids come back and there's learning loss and they're really struggling and their grades took a major hit during the pandemic and now. The solution isn't to say, oh gosh, look at what we've done to these kids. We owe it to them to get them back up to speed. Let's work harder. No, the solution is we're burnt out. Let's bring them back into classrooms less. Let's do half days. Let's do days off. Let's out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Add days off to the schedule, and let's get rid of the metrics, the objective metrics like testing and grades that reflect our failure. Let's get rid of them and call it equity. Disgusting. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 
Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. Our upcoming guest ran the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office for some time, and I want to get his analysis on some of the rhetoric and the fighting that we're seeing here in Washington, D.C. over the Democrats' multi-trillion dollar Build Back Better spending binge. And they're having really quite a difficult time getting all of their ducks in a row, especially one duck in particular from West Virginia and another one from Arizona. And perhaps for good reason, the CBO was asked by Republicans to score, analyze the Democrat spending bill without the budget gimmicks of having 10 years worth of taxes pay for one or three or five years worth of a program. With the Democrats saying that they intend those programs to be permanent and the cutoffs, the sunsets, the expirations are purely just to manipulate the math. So the CBO runs it through the computer and says, oh, it only costs, quote unquote, you know, close to two trillion dollars. What would it look like if it actually did something honest, if the Democrats put out an honest bill that said these are the programs that we want? We want them to be permanent. We've said so publicly. Here's what it would cost over the full 10 years. And that number is closer to $5 trillion, with $3 trillion in new deficits, new deficits, on top of the horrible deficits and debt we already have. $3 trillion. They say it costs $0. They say it's fully paid for. It's not. Now, Democrats are now angry at the Congressional Budget Office. But when it has suited them... They have cited CBO as the ultimate authority. In fact, the gold standard. Here's a flashback, a little montage of Democrats praising the CBO under various circumstances when it was uh, politically expedient to do so. Let's just stroll down memory lane together with cut one. And the estimates for the CBO, which is really, a you know, as you know, the gold standard, no Republican or Democrat questions this. Some of them are trying to pin a rose on this report and make it sound like it's a good thing. And the others of them are trying to discredit the CBO. But it's completely wrong. Before we enact major legislation, we should know the truth. CBO speaks the truth. They've been speaking the truth for decades. And to try to attack CBO is simply attacking the messenger. The CBO nonpartisan, fact-based score shows what a horror show this Republican plan is. We're going to be stopping it cold, and certainly the CBO information gives us a big, uh, big boost. And by the way, a lot of that was talking about the horrible Armageddon of tax cuts for the American people, which spurred massive economic growth and led to a huge expansion of the economy, tons of jobs added, wages going up. They were wrong about everything. But what they really wanted people to know at the time was CBO sacrosanct. Gold standard. They speak the truth. You heard Pelosi. You heard Schumer. You heard Biden. Now, just yesterday, the press secretary at the White House, and this has been echoed by many Democrats on Capitol Hill, calling what the CBO has produced, their new analysis, fake. It's a fake analysis. And their reason is, oh, well, the bill that they're scoring does have the sunsets. It does have the cutoffs. It doesn't matter whether they are realistic or not. That's what the bill says. So extrapolating out to 10 years, that's not technically in the bill and therefore it's fake. Here's the problem with that. Democrat after Democrat after Democrat has said publicly that their 100% intention is to get these programs in place 
and then extend them permanently. That's all the Republicans said. Hey, CBO, let's take the Democrats at their word. They want this to be a full 10-year program. If you got rid of the expiration dates that they've put in there on a phony basis to make the numbers look different, just get rid of those and make it all just a clean analysis of what it would look like over 10 years. Don't believe us. It's not a made-up thing from conservatives. Listen to the Democrats themselves tell you that they want this all to be permanent in cut two. If we have our way, uh, we would make it permanent. We're looking to extend that to make it permanent. More money in people's pockets, more spending. That will expire at the end of December. It's a one-year plan. I want to extend that for years to come. Let me just say, I want permanent child tax credit. Uh, I've, I've wanted it for years. And so if we have an arbitrary limit on how much we can invest today, we'll meet that arbitrary limit and over time fight for more resources. It's important to create the program. It's important to make it permanent. It's a range of a timeline for extending the CTC and the budget resolution. Is it a few weeks? Is it months? Is it years? Oh, well, we certainly want to extend it for as long as we can, given the fiscal constraints. One of the most important things in this bill, and it will be extended for a robust amount of time. Because whatever you get, it's something that's hard to take away when they expire, right? I have not been secretive about that as well. I've said, let's do it. Democrats in their own words, that's their intention. You score their intention fiscally and the computer spits out $3 trillion in new deficits over the next 10 years. They want to call that fake. Okay, who's right? Let's bring in Douglas Holtz-Aiken, president of the American Action Forum at AAF on Twitter, also former director of the Congressional Budget Office. And Doug, it's good to have you back. Thank you for listening to all of that sound, sort of setting the table for this conversation. You know the ins and outs and the intricacies of CBO scores. What is your reaction? What can you tell our audience about the fight that's playing out right now about the new score versus the fake score versus 10 years and and the expiration dates? Give us your expertise, please. Um, I can say a couple things. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, The second is the CBO works for the Congress. It works in particular for the budget committees, and it answers their questions. And the question the Democrats asked was, what does the bill called the Build Back Better Act cost if you take it at face value? That's CBO's job when it scores bills, and they concluded that, you know, it raised 1.3 in taxes, it raised about 1.7 in uh, spending, and um, it ran a deficit of about $400 billion. Well, not all Democrats like that answer, but that's the answer they gave. Two Republicans, the ranking members of the House and Senate Budget Committee, who are people CBO literally must listen to, wrote to them and said, okay, make these changes, make these 17 programs last for 10 years and tell us what it costs now. CBO answered the question, $3 trillion more. So there's nothing fake about that. They're answering a question from their congressional masters in either case. They're using the same techniques. They're applying the same um, uh, databases to it, and, and they're getting the answers they get. It's, it's something that um, really should be taken at face value. Uh, second thing I'd say is this is not new. Um, when I was CBO director, we were engaged in the Iraq War, and the ranking member of the House Budget Committee, then a gentleman named John Spratt from uh, South Carolina, must have written me 30 such letters saying, suppose the troops stayed for five years or six years or seven years. Suppose we had 50,000 more. Suppose we had 100,000 more. What would it cost? And we answered every time. And each time they would take those letters and say, CBO says X, Y, or Z. So neither the analysis is strikingly new or different, nor is the politics. Um, This is about 
what is the genuine policy decision to be made? And Republicans are saying the decision is the threshold decision to have these programs or not, because if we have them, they're going to be very expensive. And the Democrats are saying, we want to have them. How can we get there? <laughs> so, right. And make them look less expensive temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the tensions here, Doug, is that the Democrats, and this is what, in my view, they want to try to have both ways. They want to tell their base and their voters, who are the ones who support this bill, fewer Americans do. I cited an NPR uh, poll yesterday, 41 percent of the country supports Build Back Better, just 36 percent of independents. Many Americans very worried about inflation, understandably so. But the base of the Democratic Party wants this. They always want more spending. They always want more taxes, preferably not taxes on themselves, of course. But what they want to tell the Democrats, their base is we are enacting transformative change with these new programs. We are creating new programs that will be here basically forever. We are transforming our economy. But what they want to tell CBO just for this snapshot moment in time is, oh, no, it's not transformative. We want this to be temporary. Our transformative change is actually just temporary. We're going to try these programs for two or three years and just score it that way, even though they're out there telling their base, telling the American people, oh, no, we want these to be permanent transformative programs. I don't think it's unreasonable at all for Republicans to make the ask that they have of CBO saying if we just listen to the Democrats' own words, they expect these to be permanent. It's very hard to uproot a program once it's already in place. Let's actually get a more realistic picture of what this will cost. I don't know what the argument against that would be aside from just huffing and puffing about how it's all fake and unfair. I, I think you've got that about right. So let me, from the point of view of CBO, emphasize one thing uh, just pretty strongly. CBO scores what is written down, not what people say, not what they want to write down. If they make a mistake, right. they score the mistake. And so they, they scored the bill, then they scored the letter that they wrote to them, and that's that. That's their job. It is true that the administration and, and the, the various advocates for Build Back Better have regularly said things like, this is going to increase labor force cessation of women, this is going to ease the pressure on inflation, this is going to have these variety of economic effects. That can only be true if the programs don't go away. So they are trying to have it both ways. They're, they're talking budgetarily as if they went away, and they're talking on economic substance as if they're still there. And so it's perfectly fair to do this apples to apples, you know, make it go away, in which case claim no economic benefits, or have it be permanent, get the economic benefits, but Let's be clear about the costs. Yeah, and I think that the job then would be not so much for the CBO, but for the media to ask the Democrats, okay, the way that you've written the bill, you're calling the the Republican requested score fake from CBO, but the way you've written the bill would say all of these programs or many of these programs that you are enacting that you want credit for, you are saying they are temporary and they will go away after three years. Is that your intention or do you want it to be permanent? And if so, how are you going to pay for it? That's what I think Manchin is asking for. I know Lindsey Graham was on Fox News Sunday making that point. If you want – look, we can have a big philosophical conversation and a big debate in this country. Do we want a massive expansion of the government, $5 trillion over 10 years of new spending and massive new programs on all sorts of things? And I think there are huge side effects and unintended consequences on childcare and all this other stuff, setting aside even debt and deficits. But – 
having an understanding of what the intentionality is is very important. And also, if you are truly a believer in all of this spending and you think it's going to help the country and you insist it's all going to be paid for, and it's we already know even under their own manipulated score, it's not all paid for. If you're going to have three trillion more dollars anticipated, how are you going to pay for that? And the only answer that we've gotten so far is, well, we'll get to that bridge and we'll cross it when we're there. And if we extend these programs, it'll have to be paid for. That's, I don't know, to me, that seems like a very empty talking point. And yet it's the talking point where the White House seemingly has landed, Doug. Well, that's a dangerous talking point for them. There are now uh, two um, independent nonpartisan uh, entities, the, the Penn Wharton Budget Model and the Tax Foundation, that have taken a look at the economic impacts of the Build Back Better Act, where in the final five years, all the spending is gone and you just have the tax increases, and they uniformly conclude that this is going to shrink the economy, be bad for growth and jobs. If you say we're going to pay for it, you're going to add another $3 trillion to those taxes. There's only $1.3 in the original bill, and somehow the spending is going to be miraculously productive to, to offset that. And they could find out that answer if they asked the Joint Committee on Taxation. I mean, you know, th- these are things the Congress can know. So they have simply decided not to ask. <laughs> That's all that's going on. Um, so, so Because they, they have, what? Because they don't want the answer? Because they, they know it's going to be problematic? They, they, absolutely. Yes, they don't want the answer. It's not hard to figure that out. Uh, all the spending's up front. All the taxes are in the back. The upfront spending would be a lot like a stimulus bill. With the inflation you have, that's the last thing they need. The taxes hurt growth and jobs. That's clear in the analysis. So do you really want to double down on, on both of those things? That seems like a bad idea. It certainly does to me, and it certainly does to one or two senators who are the only thing, it would seem, standing between this becoming law uh, versus not. And I think that this fight over CBO, some of the ferocity here is because there's a bit of desperation on the Democratic side. They don't want a more realistic picture to be painted of this. They don't want to talk about the tax increases uh, and the new revenue that would be required to pay for all of this, which is why they deflect away talking about, oh, well, the Republicans did this thing a few years ago that wasn't fully paid for. Even if you think that's a good talking point, which I don't for various reasons, that is not the promise that the Democrats have made. The Democrats and the president have said point blank over and over again that their plans will add zero dollars to deficits, cost zero dollars, as they put it. It is fully paid for. They say it ad nauseum. If that is true, there's a magical three trillion dollars sitting out there that they need to account for. They don't want to because the answers there would be very painful Politically, that's why they're playing this game. That's why I think we're seeing this big brawl over CBO, the former director of whom is Douglas Holtz Eakin, who is now president of the American Action Forum. Sir, thank you very much. Your insights here are super valuable because you have been there. You've done that. And uh, we really appreciate your time. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. And we will step aside. Come right back. A new excuse on inflation from the White House. You have to hear it to believe it. That's next from Jen Psaki on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. 
So last week we learned that in November, inflation rose at its highest rate in almost 40 years. It was the worst in 39 years. Then a new stat, another metric today, the November producer price index rose 9.6% year over year, the highest level of inflation ever on record and worse than expectations. The core number was also worse than expected, up 7.7% year over year versus 7.2%, which is what the experts were anticipating. This is real. This is painful. This is not transitory. But circle back, Jen Psaki at the White House has a real culprit in mind. Listen to Cut 22. Does the president endorse that idea? Does he think the corporate greed is the big driver of inflation right now? Well, I think that the president thinks the way people across the country, American families, uh, digest inflation is by price increases. And if you look at industry to industry, it's a little different. So, for example, the president, the secretary of agriculture have both spoken to what we've seen as the greed of meat conglomerates. That is an area when where people go to the grocery store and they're trying to buy a pound of meat, two pounds of meat, 10 pounds of meat. Um, it is the prices are higher. That is, in his view, uh, and the view of our Secretary of Agriculture, because of, you could call it corporate greed, sure. You could call it uh, jacking up prices uh, uh, it, during a pandemic. Amazing. The greed of meat conglomerates. That's what's happening here. They rail against big pharma, big oil. Well, watch out for the sinister influence of big meat. Charles Cook from National Review mocking this says this is the evil brilliance of the plan you see they waited until we had a period of generalized inflation and then they struck without mercy logan dobson a republican aide crazy how the meat conglomerates were not previously greedy and then just as the biden administration was overseeing massive inflationary spending they got very very greedy this is what the white house is reduced to arguing big meat decided to strike and smite you with higher prices when everything else is going up in price too because of bad inflation. And the Biden people, and I saw Elizabeth Warren using the same talking point, oh yes, it's just the greedy corporations that are doing this. Give me a break. Like, oh, our solution, of course, is to spend more money and tax more, as always. No thank you. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show, coming up. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Our middle of three hours, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow ends in the red today, down 106, closing at 35,544. Any moment now, the House of Representatives is holding, having a vote at least, and debating whether to hold Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress. It looks very likely that that will happen. It's connected to his lack of cooperation with the January 6th committee. So that is basically a fait accompli at this point, and we will have more to say on that broader story later on in the hour. 
In the meantime, I would like to draw to your attention a situation that played out within the last week involving the Biden administration and China and our allies in Taiwan. And this is embarrassing for the United States. This is embarrassing for the Biden administration in particular. Now, I would say that the Biden team is sort of incoherent when it comes to China policy. Sometimes they do things relatively well, sometimes not. A little schizophrenic. So you've got the diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, but not a full boycott. New human rights sanctions against China, but they're also reportedly making sure that the Democrats in Congress do not send to the president's desk this slave labor bill based on the treatment and the genocide and the slave labor of Uyghurs in the western part of China. Right, they're fine with the Democrats voting on these resolutions condemning what's happening or imposing sanctions, but they don't want the two bills from each house to be combined and actually make it into law because, again, reportedly John Kerry and others, including some at the State Department, feel like that would be problematic, it would anger China, and could disrupt some of their other goals with China, including on climate change. I mean, if you're going to declare, as the administration has, rightly, that there's a genocide going on, you should really act like it, right? That is not a word to be trifled with. That's not a word to be thrown around lightly. Genocide is a horrifying word that means horrifying things. And if you won't even stand up to the slave labor involved in the genocide that you've declared and you want to slow roll that or water down the language of legislation, that is sending a message that you don't really have the courage of your convictions when it comes to standing behind the meaning and the implications of that word. Which brings us to what happened. This is a Reuters report. There was a democracy summit. Remember that. Key detail here right out of the gate. A democracy summit hosted by the United States. This was uh, last week. And... I'll just read to you what happened. Quoting from Reuters, a video feed of a Taiwanese minister was cut during U.S. President Joe Biden's Summit for Democracy last week after a map in her slide presentation showed Taiwan in a different color than China, which claims the island as its own. Sources familiar with the matter told Reuters that Friday's slideshow by Taiwanese digital minister Audrey Tang caused consternation among U.S. officials after the map appeared in her video, and that was in the feed for about a minute. These sources, who did not want to be identified due to the sensitivity of the matter, said the video feed showing Tang was cut during a panel discussion and replaced with audio only at the behest of the White House. The White House was concerned that differentiating Taiwan and China on a map on a U.S.-hosted conference to which Taiwan had been invited in a show of support at a time when it is under intense pressure from Beijing, could be seen as being at odds with Washington's one-China policy, which avoids taking a position as to whether Taiwan is part of China. State Department said confusion over screen sharing resulted in Tang's video feed being dropped, 
calling it an honest mistake. That was the State Department spin after this happened. Taiwan went along with the spin because what are they supposed to do? Right. Get into a huge blow up with the United States when you've got China rattling the saber basically every day. They can't afford to alienate the U.S. or the Biden administration. So if the Biden team was going to put out some spin, there's not much leverage here for Taiwan to say anything other than, yep, that's what happened, except it's not what happened. The Reuters piece goes on. When the moderator returned to Tang a few minutes later after she had put this graphic up. There was no video of her, just audio. And a screenshot captioned this, quote, Minister Audrey Tang, Taiwan. There was also an on-screen disclaimer that declared any opinions expressed by individuals on this panel are not those necessarily of the United States government. They are those of the individual. So they put a disclaimer on the screen saying, oh, this is her opinion. So views of the individual do not, quote, do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government. So she puts up a map. And this is about democracy and freedom and openness and civil rights. So she's got a map that's Taiwanese representative in her presentation that shows China in red as one of the closed countries, along with North Korea on these issues. Correct. Right. Factually correct. The Chinese Communist Party is a closed society. They preside and rule over a closed society. They censor their internet. They censor search results. They are big into censorship, as most commie regimes are. Taiwan, which is a democracy, an allied country of the United States, and yes, they are a separate country with a separate system, a pro-democracy system, they also are an open society. That's the whole reason that they were invited to a democracy summit, because they're a democracy and China isn't. But Taiwan was green, showing it was open on these issues. China was red, closed on those issues. Oh, no. Heaven forfend. The Chinese might see this and get mad because under our policy in the United States, which is just, uh, to me, unsustainable, we can't use different colors on a map to distinguish between China and Taiwan. So this woman puts a map up that does exactly that, perfectly accurately, perfectly appropriate within the context of this democracy summit convened by Biden himself. And then they take it down. They cut her feed. They put her name up there and then a disclaimer saying it's uh, just her opinion, not necessarily ours. And then after it said, oh, well, there was a, a screen sharing confusion, just a technical glitch, an honest mistake. Well, that was a lie. I want to get back to the Reuters story. One source told Reuters the map generated an instant email flurry among U.S. officials, the White House, angrily contacting the State Department, concerned that the map appeared to show Taiwan as a distinct country. Washington complained to Taiwan's government. Taiwan's government, in turn, was angry that Tang's video had been cut. The beef, apparently, from the Biden side was, oh, when we did a dry run, this slide wasn't in there. So they felt like they were kind of blindsided by this. And the Taiwanese were like, well, hang on, you just cut off the video feed. You censored our representative. The source tells Reuters that the U.S. move was an overreaction as the map was not inherently about national boundaries. 
quote, they choked, the source said, of the White House reaction. That's the big takeaway quote from this. They choked, meaning they, the Biden administration. They panicked. They saw China and Taiwan in different colors. They said, oh, no, this might offend China. This might offend China. Take it down. And they censored Taiwan for telling the truth at a democracy forum. Then they lied about it when they realized how bad that looked. Quote, they choked, said the source. A second source directly involved in the summit said the video booth operator acted on White House instructions. Quote, it was clearly policy concerns, meaning not a mistake, meaning not screen sharing glitches, policy concerns. Quote, this was completely an internal overreaction. Here's one more detail about this, this embarrassment. The sources saw the move during a panel on, quote, countering digital authoritarianism as at odds with the summit's mission of bolstering democracy in the face of challenges from China. I want you to think about this. The Biden administration makes a big show out of convening a democracy summit. Great. I'm all for it. They invited Taiwan. I love that. Good for them. Taiwan is a democracy. That's sending a signal. We're standing with Taiwan. We're sending a message to China. We love to see it. Now, during the democracy summit, the representative from Taiwan shows up and they're talking about countering digital authoritarianism and they're discussing the openness of these societies. And on the map, she shows Taiwan as an open society. Correct. They're a democracy. It's why they're invited in the first place to the democracy summit and China in red as closed because they're a communist repressive regime and a closed society. And what the Biden administration does at this whole event designed to push back against China, they freak out that this might offend China. And so at a democracy summit, they censor one of the democratic countries by shutting down her screen literally during a panel called Countering Digital Authoritarianism. They engage in Chinese Beijing-style censorship in order to not offend the Chinese Communist Party. And they do so in this absolute panic. They choked, as the source said. Then I guess at some point they looked around and said, oh, golly, that looks really bad. So then they decided to just gaslight and lie. Oh, there was a technical glitch and the people involved said, no, it wasn't. Amazing. Jim Garrity at National Review reacting to this writes this. Our leaders are such damnable wimps. We say we want to stand up for democracy and that we won't get bullied by authoritarians. And then we bend over backwards to avoid offending the far-reaching and ever-changing sensibilities and sensitivities of the brutes in Beijing. There's no need for China to censor what our leaders say. Our leaders are now preemptively censoring themselves. If you're afraid of the Taiwanese representative showing a map that indicates Taiwan is a separate country at your much-touted democracy summit, why did you invite her? And if you're afraid to have a, Taiwan, a Taiwanese representative speaking her mind in a way that might irk the Chinese government, keeping in mind that Taiwanese representatives irk the Chinese government by existing, why are you hosting a much-touted democracy summit? Those are good questions.
And the answer to those questions are, well, they're depressing if you think about it. Allah Pundit, writing at Hot Air, asks this question. How is Taiwan supposed to compare the openness of its society to the rest of East Asia without distinguishing China? Another good question. This is team smart power. The adults, they say, are back in charge. What have we witnessed collectively around the world over the last year and a half or two years out of communist China? I go through the list all the time. It bears repeating over and over again. Violating international law and a binding treaty to trample all over Hong Kong's democracy. Arresting democracy advocates, arresting journalists. They lied about the origins of a pandemic that started in their country, quite possibly in one of their labs. They've lied about that. They've obstructed international investigations. They've bullied countries that have asked questions. They've pressured the EU and others to water down their reports about what happened. This is a virus that has killed millions of people. By the way, the EU said, yes, sir, and they watered it down. Internal whistleblowers, internal critics disappear. They've distributed defective PPE. Remember that? Weak vaccines. They've sent that around the world. That they don't really work. Aggressive moves in the South China Sea. They've killed Indian troops. They've done flyovers menacing Taiwan. Massive espionage. Massive uh, intellectual property theft. Especially robbing U.S. companies blind. And then, of course, there's the genocide and the concentration camps, and the slave labor, and the forced abortions, and the brainwashing, and the re-education, and the stamping out of religion, and the abuse of minorities. That is what the Chinese government has done for the last two years. Then they invite Taiwan, in a good move, to a democracy summit. Taiwan wants to point out the distinction on the openness between themselves, a democracy, and China, not And because you have the wrong colors on the map, the Biden people lose their minds because China might get offended. So they come in and cut the feed like you saw out of Tiananmen Square by the Chinese Communist Party. I only laugh because it's so sad. And then on top of all of it, and this is the cherry on top, the Sunday, where it was, of course, this this particular panel was about countering digital authoritarianism, which is amazing. They get caught. And they decide to do what the Biden administration so often does on Afghanistan, on inflation, on everything. They gaslight and they lie to us and insult our intelligence and blame it on a technical glitch. When the people who were there said, no, this was about policy. This was a freak out, a huge overreaction for fear of China. And, quote, they choked. Sure, Beijing, Chairman Xi quivering in his boots facing off against this administration right now. It's so frustrating and embarrassing. We've got to run. It's the Guy Benson Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I thought about saving this story for the next hour, the happy hour, but I can't resist. I can't wait. Disgraced ex-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo 
will be forced to return the money from the proceeds of his book written during the COVID-19 pandemic after a 12 to 1 vote by the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. Cuomo will have to return $5.1 million earned to the state that he earned to the state by next month after this panel concluded that the governor had violated pledges not to use state resources or government staff to prepare the project. Resolution was drafted by Commissioner David McNamara. Cuomo, according to McNamara, now, quote, lacked the legal authority to engage in outside activity and receive compensation in regard to the book. And we'll see if uh, Cuomo complies here, but this is a 12 to 1 ruling by the Ethics Commission on this. I guess this is their jurisdiction. And the problem for Cuomo, among several, of course, was that he did use state resources, including underlings in the governor's office, to write the book, to prepare the book, and to secure the book deal, which was very rich. Of course, the premise of the book, his amazing leadership during COVID, was a lie, buttressed and promulgated by cover-ups and deceit when it comes to deaths in nursing homes and elsewhere. So some more comeuppance, it would seem, for former Governor Cuomo and Janice Dean is smiling somewhere. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show, and we are pleased to welcome back to the show Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. Her book is The Mind of a Conservative Woman, and she also hosts a podcast, Freedom Rings. Senator, welcome back. It is good to be with you. Thank you so much. I want to start with the terrible weather event, the tornadoes over the weekend. I know multiple states have been impacted, including yours. In Tennessee, what can you tell us about how your state has been affected and what people can do to help? Yes, indeed. Uh, There are nine counties in Tennessee where tornadoes touch down. And our Tennessee emergency management system, uh, you can go to tema.tn.gov, and that will put you to the charities that are working with these individuals. But, Guy, we're the volunteer state. People show up. They showed up with their pickup truck and their chainsaw, and they went to work and did their best to help remove debris and trees and uh, to get people to safety, to uh, help to secure buildings, patch windows that had been blown out. And uh, Tennesseans are coming back from this. We did our emergency declaration yesterday, and I assembled our congressional delegation, and we got our letter of support in on that last night. Do you expect that the federal government will provide whatever resources are necessary for places like Tennessee and, of course, Kentucky? Oh, yes, I think that they will. I know that our governor talked to the president, and then on Saturday afternoon he was out surveying damage, and that is really what enabled us to complete the necessary paperwork and to get it to the administration. There's a tremendous amount of need when you have such an adverse weather event and you have 
such a storm cell that travels and really a tornado with these spin-off tornadoes and you have the touchdown in Missouri and uh, Tennessee and Kentucky and Illinois and just the expanse of that type storm. Yeah, and it's hard any time of the year. It's especially devastating for people right before Christmas. And so can you just give that website one more time where people can log on and see the associated charities that are active in Tennessee? Yes, TEMA, T-E-M-A dot T-N dot gov. Okay, TEMA.TN.GOV. dot G-O-V. Let's move Correct. from your home state to Washington, D.C., and the ongoing drama on Capitol Hill it really seems like your Democratic colleague, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, is not interested in going along with what the Democrats certainly have passed out of the House of Representatives. They and the White House are raging at the Congressional Budget Office for telling the truth about how much this will cost and how much the deficit will balloon $3 trillion over 10 years when you get rid of all of their gimmicks. But I think the American people, you look at the polling senator, the American people are moving away from supporting this bill because they're feeling inflation and you don't need an advanced degree in economics to have real concern about spending trillions in new deficit spending in the middle of really painful multi-decade high levels of inflation. Well, you're right about that. And the more the American people look at this, they are realizing that this has just been shrouded in falsehoods. First of all, it's not a $1.75 trillion bill. They realize that, yes, indeed, it's closer to $5 trillion. Secondly, the bill is not paid for, and they realize now that the bill is going to add trillions of dollars to the debt. They also realize that what they're doing is putting social programs in place that they're taking 10 years of tax revenue to pay for one year of program. So what does this mean? You're going to be incurring debt all the way to this being fully implemented. And that's why we got a an updated estimate from CBO of what the bill would be if these programs went for the 10-year lifespan of the legislation and were put in place with the tax revenues they're expecting to get from this bill. So people realize that that is budget trickery, that that is D.C. accounting, and the more they know about this, the less they like it. And, you know, one of the things I have heard most about, Guy, is what they're doing to child care, because there's a provision in the bill that would disallow faith-based organizations and churches to provide Mother's Day Out services and child care services. What it would do is up your cost about $13,000 per child per year because you would have to have a federal certification for your child care right. center. And these Mother's Day Out programs at churches, you've got a lot of grandmamas they come in there and love on these babies and help take care of them. And they help the mothers, these young moms, many first-time moms, to understand a lot about child rearing. 
so I, I think people are going to be very surprised. And oh, but they wouldn't. Really, but, Senator, they wouldn't necessarily. These grandmothers who have multiple kids and multiple grandkids, what do they know? They may not have a certificate from the federal government that makes them eligible to be a trusted care provider or whatever under the bill. And you'll have – you mentioned the number $13,000 in additional cost now is the estimate – per child, per year, if you are one of the government-picked losers under this bill who is not eligible, your family not eligible for the subsidies that are being paid for by the tax increases, including some of the tax increases on the middle class. Senator, before we move on from this, I just want you to help me here because I was a journalism major and a political science concentration. Math was never my strong suit. I had to work very hard just to get respectable grades. But correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe that $3 trillion in unpaid-for spending is more than zero dollars, which was the promise from the White House. Am I correct about that? You are correct. <laughs> Three trillion is greater than zero. You're exactly yes. right. Well, and, and I think so it's important to point that out just because that's not my standard. That's not your standard, Senator. That is the standard set forth by the Democrats and by the president and by the White House. They told us over and over again, it costs zero dollars. It is fully paid for. And the real number is three trillion dollars based on their own metrics. And so they can talk about, oh, well, the Republicans passed tax relief that wasn't fully paid for. I think that comparing letting people keep the money that they've earned to new government spending programs is an apples to oranges comparison. But it's also irrelevant because they're the ones who promised that their spending bid would be fully paid for and would cost zero dollars, which was always crazy. They meant adding zero to deficits. And now CBO clears out all the nonsense and says, actually, the real number is three trillion. That's on them. That's not on anyone else. That's their program and their promise. Well, you're right. And what has happened is with this Democrat Biden accounting that they're doing, they still are trying to say this bill is fully paid for. It's crazy. And of course, whether it's 1.75 trillion, which it is not, it is closer to 5 trillion, and the new debt load at a minimum is Three trillion, but see, this is not done with dynamic scoring, which is one of the scoring terms they use, which takes into account actions and interactions that take place based on policy. So they're not looking at the adverse impact of taxes on the marketplace. They're not looking at the adverse impact of policies on the marketplace. And you know as well as I do that once these taxes and new regulations kick in, the deficit is going to be even larger than $3 trillion. Yeah, and I think that that's quite possible, but they don't even want to accept the $3 trillion scoring where they just get rid of the gimmicks and make all the programs permanent the way they say they want to make them permanent. They say that's fake. They say that's unfair. But that's the reality based on their own rhetoric and their own promises. Briefly, Senator, I want to ask you about foreign policy. You have co-authored an op-ed at foxnews.com about Ukraine. Tell us about that op-ed, who you wrote it with, and what the message is. Yes, my friend Michael Waltz, who is in the House, uh, is as concerned about Ukraine as I am. As a matter of fact, he just flew back last night from Ukraine. But you have to look at what is transpiring there with Russia really exercising their muscle 
and trying to go in and take more of Ukraine's territory. And it is imperative that the United States stand with Ukraine. And, of course, Ukraine is worried because when Barack Obama was president, he and Joe Biden sent Ukraine blankets and meals ready to eat when Ukraine was coming in on uh, when Russia was taking Crimea. Donald Trump comes in, and what does he do? He sends bullets and bombs over for the Ukraine to use to protect themselves. And that's important. That is what the Biden administration should be doing now. But no, they don't want confrontation. They think they can handle everything by diplomacy. So they're going to let Ukraine sit there and be the victim of this aggression from Russia and Ukraine trying to take more of and Russia trying to take more of Ukraine's territory. So uh, Representative Waltz and I put an op-ed up. We think it's important to continue to talk about this issue and to hold this administration to account for what they are not doing to help our ally Ukraine. All right, Senator Marshall Blackburn, a bit of a phone issue, so we're going to let you go, but we always appreciate your time and your perspectives on all of these issues. Republican from Tennessee, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn. Thank you so much, Senator. Merry Christmas. You too. Take care. And we will take a quick break. We will be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Well, from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. So it's interesting to watch some of our competitors at Fox News. I have all of the networks on here in the studio on mute every day. You've got Fox News, Fox Business, and then CNN and MSNBC. And it is amazing how much coverage those other two networks devote to January 6th, especially MSNBC. The Capitol riots, it's like their lead story every day, something that happened almost a year ago. And look, it was a big story. We were on the air live when it happened. I was basically doing play-by-play off of what I was seeing on TV. We had congressmen calling in from their offices, barricaded in. It was awful. And I think getting to the bottom of exactly what happened that day and what didn't happen, who was responsible, who wasn't responsible, how organic it was, how planned it was, all of that is important and appropriate. It was a national disgrace. It should never happen again. I put the lion's share of the blame on former President Trump. I've talked about that publicly. I've written about that publicly. I don't dwell on it constantly because I feel like he is no longer president. We now have a president who is failing in so many ways and holding him accountable and the Democratic Congress accountable is how we spend much of our time here because a lot of the other press won't do it. They're too busy addicted to the former president who they want so badly to run again. They miss him because of their ratings, their villain that they can all have and unify in hatred, all of that. And that's part of the reason why they fixate on January 6th. We don't fixate on it. We also don't sugarcoat it here. And that's been my position. And I know some of you in the audience might disagree, but I think we disagree in this country sometimes, and that's okay. My position has been crystal clear 
on January 6th. As it happened and in its immediate aftermath, and overall, my thoughts on that day are unchanged. As I said, a national disgrace. Now, there was some news out of this January 6th committee, and it's interesting because both sides have their talking points about the committee. And there is spin, of course, and some truth and some, let's say, a partisan angle to both perspectives. And there have been some people held in contempt. There's been some evidence that's come forward. And what's making some news in the last 24 hours, and this is like Christmas come early for MSNBC and CNN, because they're talking about January 6th every day, even if they don't really have big news hooks. Now there's actual news hooks. So it's like breaking news graphics flying all over the place. They are so excited that they get to talk about this with new developments, text messages that were sent on that day. I would like to just read to you a few texts that were sent from President Trump's son, Don Jr., to the White House chief of staff at the time, Mark Meadows, in the middle of what was happening with that surge into the Capitol from the rioters who were seeking to disrupt the process of counting the electoral votes based on a lie. The lie being that Trump was cheated and that Biden hadn't really won the election and that Vice President Pence could do something about it unilaterally. None of that was true. There was some reporting recently that Vice President Pence was asked by the president, Donald Trump, when he was pressuring Pence to try to personally not overturn the election, but decide which slates of electors he could choose based on partisan preferences. And Pence said, the guidance, I'm paraphrasing, the guidance that I've gotten from all the legal experts is I cannot do that. And Trump reportedly said, but wouldn't it be cool if you could? Don't you think it would be cool? Wouldn't you want that power? And Pence just said no. And good for him because he was following the Constitution. So amid the melee, Trump is out there tweeting, telling people there was that big rally, repeating all the stuff about election fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Stop the steal. The count is happening on Capitol Hill. All the tinder was there for a fire to get lit. And then, of course, we saw the resulting conflagration. And as that riot played out horrifyingly on our TV screens, Don Jr. texted Mark Meadows at the White House, quote, talking about his dad, he's got to condemn this bleep ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Meadows responded, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. There were then follow-up texts, including from Don Jr. saying, quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. And there were other allies of the president and the White House texting similar things in the moment. I think that it is completely reasonable to wonder if some people are overblowing January 6th for political reasons, overstating the threat to democracy, pumping up all the volume and the fear about it because it sort of fits their narrative and fits their ratings strategy. Right. I think there's some of that going on. We also should not downplay what happened that day. Americans of all political stripes should look at what happened and say that can never happen again. And the fact that the president's own son, very loyal to his dad, very conservative, very much team MAGA, saw it 
and in real time recognized it for what it was, saying he's got to stop this now. And it took really hours until Trump finally did something. I think that is a revelation that is newsworthy about that day. And we're up at the end of the hour. And I've basically said my piece. But I wanted to put that out there and bring you that context and bring you that color. Texts from the president's son about the president's actions on the 6th of January of this year. Our final hour of The Guy Benson Show is upcoming. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is here. She's going to react to the new child vaccine mandates in places like New York City. I have a feeling she's not going to be a fan. We'll get her medical analysis straight ahead. It's The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. It has arrived with bells on, Christmas bells, in fact. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, is always free. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson. And if you do, you would have seen some photos from our Christmas party about a week and a half ago, a little over a week ago, where the long drink was served. And we sold out of long drink. There's just every can gone. TheLongDrink.com is their website. It is such a delicious beverage. We recommend it. If you're 21 plus, of course, always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. And if you looked at some of my photos from our Christmas party, you may have also seen our next guest who was in attendance with her husband. It was so much fun. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board certified medical doctor and senior Fox News medical contributor. She's also best-selling author of Panic Attack. She joins us yet again. Doctor, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. And also, you can add to that repertoire a new fan of long drink. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear it. You know who also is? Molly Hemingway. She was like, what is this magic elixir? She was tweeting about how much she liked it. So I think when people try it, they like it. And also, last note on the party, I have to forever thank your husband for insisting that I look like Ryan Reynolds. It was uh, the ego boost that I needed that day. And I will always cling to that compliment for the rest of my life. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that was because he was maybe on 10 hours of sleep because he had been on call the preceding seven days, but it, I could definitely see where he's coming from, Guy, and you have that baby face, gorgeous man, Ryan Reynolds look. You just do. What can I say? Okay. This, the check's in the mail, doctor. I appreciate it. Uh, let's start with a soundbite here. It is from the chairwoman of the South African Medical Association. This is Dr. Angelique Coetzee. We have played clips from her Previously on the show, she is now giving an update basically a month into the Omicron variant in South Africa. It has been the dominant variant. She is once again saying everyone needs to take a step back and take a breath because this is what we are seeing on the ground in South Africa. Cut 16. 
after four weeks, this is now our fourth week, there's no reason why you can't trust us when we say to you it's mild disease. Um, we're not saying that there will be sick patients. That's not what we're saying. We say the majority is mild. There's no need to hospitalize any of these mild cases. Um, there's no really no need. And these patients um, recover within about five days. Whether you are a child, whether you are 80 years of age, whether you've been vaccinated, whether you've not been vaccinated, whether you have suffer from mild diseases, other comorbidities, this is what we see. This is the real life. This is the real experience that we are having. And if we have seen that there are really severe diseases and cytokine storms, everyone was afraid that that might happen two to three weeks later. Well, in primary health care, we passed that three weeks and we haven't seen it. So if we were waiting for all the bad news to arrive in South Africa, she says, we would have seen it by now and it is not happening. She says, yes, it's highly contagious. Yes, there are a lot of cases, but the severity of the disease is not there. It is mild disease. Our ICUs, she said, down in South Africa are not overwhelmed. Our hospitals are not overwhelmed. The system is not being overrun. Quote, that is not happening. To me, based on that data, which now is reflected across the world with the spread of Omicron, this is very good news. And yet, doctor, it feels like a lot of our experts and a lot of people in our media are not really covering it that way and are not communicating with the public how positive on virulence this news seems to be. Am I missing something? Am I being too optimistic and too critical of the media? Could you imagine that if we had the equivalent of a pragmatic um, scientific official actually laying forth data and what they're seeing um, in real time in the United States? Unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, I actually have a piece that came out today on FoxNews.com saying, how will COVID end? And I talk a lot about this because one of the things that happens with a lot of viruses Um, One of the huge theories of what happened from the 1918 Spanish flu was that over time, a virus continues to mutate until it becomes more mild or less virulent. And as our population immunity grows through combination of natural and vaccine-induced immunity, our ability to fight off these milder variants is even stronger. So what we're hearing from South Africa, as well as other countries, is that, yes, this virus, this variant is highly contagious, but people are seeing milder symptoms and a shorter duration of symptoms, meaning they're contagious for a lesser amount of time. And that's great news. An important point is that they're seeing cases in those who are vaccinated and those who are unvaccinated. And there's not a, and while you do see less severe disease in those who are vaccinated, it's really just mild cases that are for the majority being reported in both cases. They're also noting that there is some reinfection in people who have already been infected with COVID-19. But again, we've never needed a vaccine to prevent the sniffles. So if we are still able to prevent people from going into the hospital, from dying, from having long COVID, that's a win in my opinion. We need to move forward as a nation, as a world, to allow this virus to become endemic and let it become seasonal, just like the seasonal flu. We're not going to just have flu season, we'll have flu and COVID season. But the only way to get there is to accept and allow this virus to circulate and have mild infections. And that's, at least according to this doctor, and she's not alone, it's data from around the world, the infections here on Omicron, from Omicron, are less severe, less virulent, perhaps much so, compared to Delta. And if that is what becomes the dominant strain, Omicron, 
I said this yesterday. There's no good news when it comes to a pandemic, really. And so oh, there's a new strain. It's less virulent. That's not exactly good news. But relatively speaking, it is because you would much rather have, it would seem, am I wrong about this, Omicron spreading rapidly across the country than Delta in terms of the chances of people going to the hospital or dying. Omicron is less severe and less lethal based on everything that we know so far. Right. That's what it seems like so far. Obviously, we do need more time to see how that plays out. However, what I can tell you is Pfizer just came out showing that, yes, Omicron, they're the Pfizer vaccine, there's a 70% ability to prevent hospitalization against this variant of concern that's lesser than the Delta or the original strain, which is upward of 90%. But 70% is great. 70% is much higher than the flu shot. And what we have to remember, what we have to remember is when you look at the data, the people who are in the United States being hospitalized right now, the far majority of them are either unvaccinated or vaccinated and over the age of 70. Of the people who are dying, it is again the unvaccinated or the vaccinated over the 80. So we have to move forward, continuing to protect the vulnerable as we do every single year because elderly die from flu and pneumonia every single year. But the people who are not vaccinated at this point, that is their choice. And there are other bad decisions that people make every day. They drink alcohol. They lead sedentary lifestyles. They smoke cigarettes. And we have not mandated or outlawed any of that. So until we as a nation get on board of outlawing things that our bad health decisions, we need to move forward and allow people to make choices that may affect their health. We, we accept that for other things. It's time to accept that for COVID. And Dr. Sapphire, that leads me to my next question, which really springs from the op-ed at foxnews.com that you mentioned a moment ago. The headline is, how is COVID going to end? To me, it would be a combination of natural immunity, vaccine-induced immunity, less virulent varieties or strains right, of this disease, and also new and effective ways of treating the virus when people contract it. And we have seen various therapeutics out there, some of which seem to be very effective. We have seen antibodies that people can receive. I know you yourself, you had a breakthrough case, you got some of those antibodies. And now there's this new COVID pill that Pfizer says that's They've gotten their data. They looked at all of it, and they say it is highly effective. Once someone has COVID, if they take this pill, it prevents severe disease. It also works against Omicron. It massively cuts down someone's chances of having to be hospitalized. I mean, you look at that combination, that kind of buffet of options. I don't know. To me, as a layperson, when you add them all together, that starts to answer the question that you pose in your op-ed, how does this pandemic end? with all of the above? Undoubtedly, the treatment, updated treatment protocols are life-changing right now. You have to think back in early 2020, no one knew how to treat COVID. Everyone was getting ventilated, which was why we had ventilator shortages. Then all of a sudden we realized, oh my gosh, you put COVID patients on ventilators and more people are dying. And I talk a lot about that in my book, Panic Attack. Now we have, just like the emergence of Tamiflu, With the flu, we have many treatments that are proven effective against COVID-19. That is the recent Pfizer medication, the oral tablet that they came out showing an 89% ability to reduce hospitalization. But here's the thing, guys. Not everyone needs these medications. The majority of people, especially if they're vaccinated, who get COVID-19 at this point, if they are younger, if they are healthier, they will have mild illness. Yeah, they recover naturally. That's absolutely right. Your immune system is probably one of the best things that you have 
to fight an infection. And the way that you can make sure that immune system is strong is by maintaining a healthy diet, good exercise, and getting outside every now and then and getting that vitamin D. But we need to make sure that these treatments that we have proven effective are available and affordable. So we can't have it for everybody. And the great news is it's not just one magic pill. We never want to focus on one pill. You have many different treatments. And unfortunately, right now, there's a lot of restrictions against those, even with the antibody therapies, which, as you mentioned, I took. Again, I took because I am on immunosuppressant medications. I have an autoimmune disease, so I'm considered high risk. I didn't take it just because, but I had doctors hounding me day after day. You have to take it. You have to take it because they're worried about my heart because my autoimmune disease does affect my heart. And I'm glad I took it because I recovered very quickly and in a short amount of time. But anyone who is considered high risk must have access to these medications. And the only way that's going to happen is if legislators take their hands off of the noose from physicians and other healthcare providers and allow doctors to treat the patients as they see fit. Yeah, and what's really bothered me, and I'll move on to my last question here in a second, but it's also related to what's bothering me. We now have that whole arsenal that I ran through a moment ago on the vaccines, on natural immunity, on what you and I now have, hybrid immunity, on you know weakening variants, on monoclonal antibodies, on the Pfizer pill. The list goes on. And yet, even with all of that at our fingertips and now available with so much more information, it's like a lot of people in the public health establishment, a lot of people in the media, and then a lot of people by trickle-down effect to consume information from those sources – and of course, politicians setting policy, it's like we have not moved on from April of 2020 at all in some respects, where we're making the same mistakes repeatedly, like we don't have this amazing new array of options to very successfully fight severe infection, hospitalization, and death. Even though we do have all of those things, a lot of the decisions being made and the rhetoric surrounding those decisions would reflect to the average person very few changes, even though those changes are clearly here. I just wonder why. Why is that the case? Is it people addicted to the fear, chasing ratings, chasing influence? Like I don't want to go out there and, and question people's motives. It is still kind of angering though when the sense is somewhat pervasive that there are people who almost want us stuck where we used to be when we're not there anymore. Well, Guy, look, I deal with cancer professionally, not psychology, but I did write about the politicization of science in my latest book. But uh, I honestly, if I'm speaking off the cuff, I can't wrap my head around what has gone on and what continues to go on. You know, CDC director, Dr. Walensky, very intelligent, qualified woman, recently put out a post or a tweet that said, great news um, out of South Africa, you know, 80 percent of the people you know, that were vaccinated, there was, you know, mild illness with Omicron, blah, blah, blah. This is not surprising, given the fact that they were vaccinated. And I'm like, hold on a second. Let me actually pull up that study. And I look at that study and I'm like, let me be fully transparent with the data. Actually, all patients who had Omicron vaccinated and not had mild illness, except one person who required hospitalization who was vaccinated. We have to make sure and hold our public health talking heads accountable when they are twisting, when they're twisting the data and the conclusions to fit their narrative. And that's frustrating. And because they do that, they have lost trust in the public. And that's the biggest 
devastation that has occurred throughout this pandemic. Right, because that could be a lasting effect. That could be a side effect that that lingers with us for quite some time. And I want to close when we come back with a question about the mandate of the vaccine now popping up in cities around the country, New York, first and foremost, for young children. I imagine you probably have some strong thoughts on this based on your previous writing. We will get that reaction from Dr. Nicole Sapphire as soon as we come back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Benson Show Happy Hour. We are back. Thanks for listening. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, my guest. Last question, doctor, and it's on a similar note. New York City, Philadelphia, a few places now saying that kids as young as five must be vaccinated just to participate in society, to show up at a restaurant, to go to a movie theater, to do any of these things. There's this new mandate, even for kindergartners and first graders, for the COVID vaccines. When they approved the vaccines for younger kids, the talking point was, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be required for kids. Some countries are actually not recommending this for kids at all unless there are pre-existing conditions or comorbidities. And now you've got some major municipalities, cities in the United States, their leadership, I don't know what they're basing this on, but they're saying, first graders, if you want to show up with your family and eat at a restaurant, we are mandating the vaccine for you. What is your medical reaction to that, what seems to me to be a political decision in New York and elsewhere? Well, Guy, you know, I wrote my entire opinion about vaccinating five-year-olds in the Wall Street Journal last month titled Whether or Not You Should Vaccinate Your Five-Year-Old. And I'm staunchly against mandates in this age group, especially for children who have recovered for COVID-19. And based on CDC data, that's probably upward of two-thirds or about 66 percent of that age group at this point, two of which include my children who are seven and nine. So um, I don't need an 18-year-old hostess at a restaurant in New York City or at a Broadway play in New York City waiting to see the vaccine card of my young children. I would love to sit and debate with her or him the science behind it, the risks and benefits behind it. And you know what? The moment Mayor de Blasio just wants to take five minutes from his busy daily schedule to actually sit and discuss the science with me. I'll be there anytime, any place, because that man is ruining the holiday season for my children who just recovered from COVID-19 less than a month ago. And that natural immunity is as strong as that vaccine, if not stronger. And they are at a risk by getting vaccinated this short after having recovered from COVID-19. But you know what? He's moving forward with his mandate because for whatever reason, it's all political. It has nothing to do with science. And he doesn't care about my children. Yeah, certainly not the way you do as a medical doctor and a mother. And it's just wild to see arenas filled with adults vaccinated, unvaccinated at concerts and sporting events and what have you. And then children sitting outside at school, eating their lunch, separated, not allowed to speak. There's no science there, and yet that's what's playing out in some places around the country, and it's just a neurosis that goes – that is a far cry from science. And we try to stick to science and rationality, which is why we have guests like Dr. Nicole Sapphire regularly here on the program, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor. The book that she mentioned there, Panic Attack, I recommend it. 
Dr. Sapphire, always great having you here. Thank you for the clarity. We'll have you back soon. Thanks for having me, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Well, yesterday the White House referred to the new CBO score about Build Back Better as fake. A fake score based on a non-existent bill. But is that really accurate based on the Democrats' own rhetoric? We had the former CBO director, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, on the program earlier today to react. Here's part of what he said. What is your reaction What can you tell our audience about the fight that's playing out right now about the new score versus the fake score versus 10 years and and the expiration dates? Give us your expertise, please. Um, I can say a couple things. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, The second is the CBO works for the Congress. It works in particular for the budget committees, and it answers their questions. And the question the Democrats asked was, what does the bill called the Build Back Better Act cost if you take it at face value? That's CBO's job when it scores bills, and they concluded that, you know, it raised 1.3 in taxes, it raised about 1.7 in uh, spending, and um, it ran a deficit of about $400 billion. Well, not all Democrats like that answer, but that's the answer they gave. Two Republicans, the ranking members of the House and Senate Budget Committee, who are people CBO literally must listen to, wrote to them and said, okay, Make these changes. Make these 17 programs last for 10 years and tell us what it costs now. CBO answered the question, $3 trillion more. So there's nothing fake about that. They're answering a question from their congressional masters in either case. They're using the same techniques. They're applying the same um, uh, databases to it, and, and they're getting the answers they get. It's, it's something that um, really should be taken at face value. Uh, second thing I'd say is this is not new. Um, when I was CBO director, we were engaged in the Iraq War, and the ranking member of the House Budget Committee, then a gentleman named John Spratt from uh, South Carolina, must have written me 30 such letters saying, suppose the troops stayed for five years or six years or seven years. Suppose we had 50,000 more. Suppose we had 100,000 more. What would it cost? And we answered every time. And each time, they would take those letters and say, CBO says X, Y, or Z. So. Neither the analysis is strikingly new or different, nor is the politics. Um, This is about what is the genuine policy decision to be made. And Republicans are saying the decision is the threshold decision to have these programs or not, because if we have them, they're going to be very expensive. And the Democrats are saying, we want to have them. How can we get there? (laughs) Right. And make them look less expensive temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the tensions here, Doug, is that the Democrats, and this is what, in my view, they want to try to have both ways. They want to tell their base and their voters, who are the ones who support this bill, fewer Americans do. I cited an NPR uh, poll yesterday, 41 percent of the country supports Build Back Better, just 36 percent of independents. Many Americans very worried about inflation, understandably so. But the base of the Democratic Party wants this. They always want more spending. They always want more taxes, preferably not taxes on themselves, of course. But what they want to tell the Democrats, their base is, we are enacting transformative change with these new programs. We are creating new programs that will be here basically forever. We are transforming our economy. But what they want to tell CBO just for this snapshot moment in time is, oh, no, it's not transformative. We want this to be temporary. 
Our transformative change is actually just temporary. We're going to try these programs for two or three years and just score it that way, even though they're out there telling their base, telling the American people, oh, no, we want these to be permanent transformative programs. I don't think it's unreasonable at all for Republicans to make the ask that they have of CBO saying if we just listen to the Democrats' own words, they expect these to be permanent. It's very hard to uproot a program once it's already in place. Let's actually get a more realistic picture of what this will cost. I don't know what the argument against that would be aside from just huffing and puffing about how it's all fake and unfair. My full interview with Douglas Holtz Aiken on The Guy Benson Show, available in its entirety, along with my full interview in its entirety with former CBO director Douglas Holtz Aiken, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day, the whole show. That's another option. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine working from home today for an unexpected reason. We'll get into that. Plus, will it really be her home for much longer? Some developments on the real estate front. Very exciting when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com podcast always free on demand after the show every day well producer christine is working from home today for a reason that is pretty i would say amazing but it's not really that amazing or shocking or surprising it is still frustrating christine we will get to that reason in a moment but first you are working from home inside a home that may not be yours for much longer yesterday you were bemoaning the fact that after two apparently successful open houses over the weekend, as you're trying to sell your house, you had no offers in hand. And then rumor has it that changed overnight and might change again. So, yes, we got an offer this morning that was pretty respectful and respectable. And we will be getting another offer later on that apparently is going to be even better. So we're in we're in the right on the right path. We just This could go fast. Yeah, no, I think you're going to have, it sounds like, two offers in hand by the end of the day. And you can potentially play those offers against each other. And I know you were telling me earlier that the first one that came in is above asking price and waives some big contingencies. And those contingencies, if you've ever bought or sold a condo or a house, you know that you can often be sort of on pins and needles if you're waiting for this thing to come through or that evaluation to come through or this inspection to clear or what have you, if there are buyers willing to say, never mind with that, that really sweetens the pot. That really sweetens the offer, I think, because a lot of the potential pitfalls or obstacles in the future are gone right out of the gate. That's what my real estate agent said. She said it's very, very rare. She she doesn't get this often. She also said that these people are putting a substantial amount of money down. It's not like just the normal 10 or 20 percent, So, which would make it quicker with the banks because they're not yep. going to be taking out like rock-solid financing. So right. So she said it's not the number that Bobby and I wanted. It's pretty close. But it's not the number we wanted. But she said you have to take these things into account. You know, we never sold a house before. 
So, you know, immediately Bobby and I were like, oh, pass. No, thanks. We don't want that. And she's like, no, 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 you got you to gotta listen to me. <laughs> she's like, so she's explaining more and more. And then, of course, I called Judgey Joyce because Judgey Joyce knows everything. And she thought it was phenomenal. So she said, don't just discount it right away. Well, I mean, um, I, I'm sort of amazed that you were discounting it because it's above asking with multiple contingencies waived. That's almost an ideal offer. I mean, it's it could be a little better, maybe a little bit richer, maybe, you know, uh, cash or something like that. But as far as offers go, that's pretty great. And look, if this next offer that you're expecting sometime this evening, if that comes in and it's relatively generous, you can always come back to the first couple or the first potential buyers, whoever it is, and say, look, we have another offer. It's a little bit higher. Would you be willing to get to X, which is the number that you have in your head that would then be acceptable? And then you've kind of got the best of all worlds, depending on what this offer is tonight. Like, are you nervous? Or are you excited about tonight? I'm, I'm excited. I, I, I did have to call the apartment building already just to confirm that there are avail, like there's availability starting January 1st because oh, like the, the place that you would move. Yeah, because the one that's coming in tonight, uh, they're living in a hotel as of right now. Oh, so that is what they, we call a motivated, motivated buyer. Yeah, well, we had put down we didn't want, you know, anybody coming to look at this house during the week. We said weekends only, and the realtor begged my realtor to get in here this week as soon as tomorrow. Uh, you know, like, this was, this is pretty big. So, and then she said she really, truly believes there's going to be more offers. She was shocked there wasn't any yesterday. So, it could be, it could be a pretty quick thing. Luckily, I did the place that we possibly would move into. They are ready, and they have plenty of apartments ready to go. So we're good on that end. All right. Well, the big scheme, it's underway. It's exciting, but it's like, sounds like it's happening. And you know, you know what this means for you and I, right? I have no idea, and now I'm scared. So one of the plans that uh, my husband and I have is to go partners on a house up uh, near your vacation spot. So, like, we could coordinate vacation time and coordinate, like, work dates and stuff. And, you know, we could plan everything together. Mm, That is that sounds like something that I will take under advisement. Why don't you give me your dates in advance and then I'll plan my dates around that? Or, or in conjunction with, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how I would go one way or the other, but I feel like it's important for at least one of us to be here, you know, holding the fort down when the other one is on vacation because of, because of the show, you know, continuity. That's, that's, I think, the good excuse that I'll give. Well, I mean, if I ever get to actually leave my home and when my daughter is not quarantined, maybe we, we could do that. Yes. So that <laughs> brings us back to what we said at the very top of the segment. You are working from home because your daughter now cannot be at school because they've sent a bunch of kids. Have they have they closed the school completely? So I thought they had closed the school completely. Apparently, the bunch of kids was all in one grade, which was my daughter's grade. So the entire third grade is not allowed in the school, which is crazy to me. Like Because there have been some, some exposures, some positive tests. You said one of the teachers came to school sick and told the kids they were sick, and then it turned out it was COVID? 
Yeah, the teacher, gosh, I hope people don't listen from that school. The teacher uh, was coughing and sneezing and even told the kids, you guys got to behave, you know, because I don't feel well today. And then Megan said after lunch, uh, the teacher was gone. And I was like, livid. And it's so sweet. Kids are just so innocent. You know what Megan said to me? She goes, Mommy, don't be mad. Like, how nice of her to come. And she still wanted to teach us, even though she didn't feel well. And I was like, oh, yeah. it's like so sweet and innocent. Like, she doesn't understand how That is a very nice really way of framing it. But I feel like if you're in the middle of a COVID pandemic and you've got some of the symptoms of that virus don't show up to work when you're exhibiting the symptoms or at least go get a test first. And now you've got a whole grade at home, even though these kids are what, eight, nine years old, they're going to be fine even if they get COVID. But now there's all these disruptions for parents. I know you called the parents. Yeah, Bobby had to leave work, what, early yesterday. You were briefly in a panic because you had missed multiple calls from him. And they gave you guys, this blows me away, they gave you guys an hour. Like, oh, school's canceled, your kids are in the auditorium, you've got an hour to come get them in the middle of the workday. Like, people have jobs. What my husband didn't understand was Megan was one of the second-to-last kids waiting. He goes, how did these people get here? Like, do they not work? Like, what is happening? And um, But he did get there in time because they, they put them in a separate area, the whole grade, so they were not with the school. Um, and nobody was really seemed to be apologetic. My husband did write a very strong-worded email this morning saying how irresponsible this is, how unfair it is to the parents, and um, we can't send her back until her PCR test comes. And, you know, that's 28 to 40, 24 to 48 hours. So we're waiting. We did give her one of those at-home rapid tests, and she was negative. So my husband did email that and say, can this be enough? Can we get her, you know, back? And I, I don't think they, they want them back. for the. I think their goal is to say just keep them home for the rest of the week. So luckily, Judgy Joy, well, if, it, we if have it's hang on, if it's go. for the rest of the week, Christine, then we're getting awfully close to Christmas. Like this could be the situation where they're like, actually, out of an abundance of caution, no school until after the holidays like that might be coming, honestly. And everyone knows the last few days before Christmas, no one gets anything done in schools, like especially at that age. It's just parties and class gatherings and Christmas stuff and cookies. I would not be surprised if they try to push this thing off. I think you're right. Dan and I were actually speaking about this. Dan brought this up yesterday because don't forget, my daughter goes to a private school. Their Christmas break starts next Monday. So this was the last week before until the new year. So this makes sense completely that they will just tell them, you know, just hang tight, stay home. We did this happen last year. Remember right before Easter? Megan was mm-hmm. out of school for 21 days. 21 days. No, it's wild. And you say it makes sense. It doesn't really make sense scientifically or for the well-being of kids, but it makes sense in terms of some of the mentality here that's going around. And we opened the show on this exact subject earlier. The one thing that I have to say that I am genuinely surprised by in all of this is the fact that you – are not losing your mind, right? When Bobby was texting you and calling you and all this stuff, you sounded worried. And then there are some kids 
who are positive at the school and the teacher was positive in Megan's classroom and all this stuff. And now you're working from home and blah, blah, blah. I was expecting to get a text from Bobby earlier saying that Cookie just went up to the roof of the house and set herself on fire and jumped. Right. That would be your very calm, level headed response to this typically. And yet you're like very laissez faire. You know, it is what it is. Shrug. Move on. Like, are you okay? This this is very unlike you. Uh, Listen, I'm okay. There has been no mama's juice taken. I mean, I don't know what's happening. But Bobby said maybe we can cancel the therapist going forward. Maybe I'm cured. (laughs) Because the anxiety has really... I I think he was more anxious than I was. I just... The thing is, Guy, I know it sounds crazy, but I actually do listen to you. And I really wasn't worried when it came to Megan. Even if she did test positive... I wasn't that worried because I knew the science behind this. I listened to the doctors that we have that I book and it Good. just did. It didn't scare me the way that it, it you know, it should have with well, you it's, know, it's my taken record. you more than a year and a half, but I'm glad that it's breaking through that. You know, that even if Megan gets that test that comes back and she's positive for whatever reason, she's eight and she's going to be fine. And, That's a lesson that you have internalized, which makes me very happy. And isn't it nice to know data and know science and not have a panic freak out? It seems like good progress and and good mental health. I know. It's I mean, I I, at the very least, I will note this to my therapist and say, hey, something's happening here. This is a breakthrough. We've had a breakthrough right here. It's amazing. Yeah, you've got the you've got on. the breakthrough. Sure. You've got these offers coming in in your house. This is a pretty momentous week, which means something bad is about to happen. I don't know what it is. Oh, this is you know. Oh, see, there's that there's that uh, thinking she tells me to steer clear from catastrophic right. thinking. She says I have. That yeah. is so. that sounds right to me. <laughs> well, let's not catastrophize. Let's in fact leave this segment on a high note because we're out of time and we've got good vibes so let's just keep them rolling into the wednesday edition tomorrow on the guy benson show same time same place here on the radio look forward to talking to all of you then have a great night everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.